the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high ratings on all the usual providers. This podcast is made possible by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Susan Burfield in the house. She's the author of a brilliant new book of history with exquisite resonance for our moment, The Hour of Fate, Theodore Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, and the Battle to Transform American Capitalism. Let me read for a moment from a review from the Washington Post. They don't give many reviews like this. Quote, Burfield's story is about the past, but also very much about the present, as our own Gilded Age raises old questions about inequality, plutocracy, and what Roosevelt once called that most dangerous of all classes, the wealthy criminal class. The book may make you both sad and mad because it serves as a poignant, painful reminder of what a real leader does, end quote. Susan Burfield, congratulations and welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thanks so much. That's a really generous introduction. And I'm really happy to be here, Jim. Well, Susan Burfield, you're an award-winning journalist for Bloomberg, known for uncovering chicanery and fraud. How did you alight upon this topic, the battle of titans at the opening of the 20th century, crystallized in the struggle between the youngest president in American history, Theodore Roosevelt, and the greatest financier in American history, J.P. Morgan? Well, I think you um, you hit on what um, appealed to me about this story, which is um, these were two men um, arguably at the height of their power, um, something that always interests um, me as an investigative journalist um, and, and as a human. <laughs> um, you know, people who have power, how do they get it? Um, what do they do with it? And how do we, um, citizens, hold them to account? And what was particularly interesting to me was that uh, this was the moment in time, uh, say about 1902, when Roosevelt as president was really the first to hold uh, one of the richest, uh, definitely the most influential person in America uh, to account for really the first time. And so when I was thinking about um, writing a book in 2016, you know, I was looking at the notion then of um, kind of, or at least the idea um, that some businesses are too big, need to be broken up, whether it's Wall Street or tech companies. Um, that's an idea that's become a lot more popular now. Um, but back then, you know, so I was looking both at um, the, the power and the, the fact that what Roosevelt was holding Morgan to account for was having a monopoly, a railroad monopoly. Let's talk for a moment about Theodore Roosevelt. Everybody remembers him. He's probably one of those presidents on tests in school that's easy to get because he has a vivid picture for most of us. What does he represent 
what should he represent as we look back on him? Yeah, that's a huge question, right? So, you know, Roosevelt at the time uh, was known as a reformer. Uh, he had, as New York governor, started to hold Wall Street to account, at least to pay certain taxes. Um, he had tangled with Morgan himself. Uh, you know, we know uh, the rest of his history as a, a rough rider um, and uh, and as a legislator and as a civil service reformer. Um, but, you know, as president, he really saw it as his um, both responsibility and I think in some ways his pleasure um, to use the full powers of the presidency uh, to an extent that maybe they hadn't been before, um, to enforce laws that existed um, that hadn't been enforced before, and to create uh, agencies and regulations that uh, really hadn't existed before to adapt to a new time. You know, as, as we are now, you know, when business grows, it often grows really quickly. America in those years was industrializing at a really, really rapid rate, um, becoming not just an economic power, but a global economic power. And Roosevelt and others were thinking about what is the government's role and what is the government's role on behalf of the citizens in this in this new economic order. And what is most surprising to you about Roosevelt? What did you learn that maybe you didn't expect? And what is it about Roosevelt that you think people in general might be surprised to learn? I think, you know, for Roosevelt, um, you know, as as a man on his own, I think one thing that was um, interesting to me, maybe not so surprising, but just, you know, he came from a very wealthy, privileged family, um, as, you know, as a lot of um, politicians, if not presidents, did then and, and do now. Um, and and yet, you know, because in part of the way that he was raised um, by a father who was a kind of traditional philanthropist, you know, in the sense of noblesse oblige. Um, and then Roosevelt had this experience um, out West, you know, though he came from privilege, he had also experienced great personal loss with the death of his first wife and his mother um, on the same day. And so he takes, you know, both um, the privilege of his position, um, the experience that he's had, and he wants to, you know, bring what he can to an essentially a new America and, and often new Americans, right? There's a lot of immigration at the time. Um, and, you know, unlike his father, I think he realized that the reform or that the times really called for a different sort of reform, you know, that it wasn't enough to kind of give charity, so to speak, as his father did, but that um, what was required were new laws, uh, new protections, and a new attitude, you know, toward both the rich in America and the middle class, um, as well as, you know, those who were uh, impoverished or being left behind. He was also, like you, a writer, a journalist, a historian, who clearly had very strong powers of imagination and empathy. For example, he's identified as a Westerner, he identified himself to a great extent as a Westerner, but he actually spent very little time there. Likewise, he was a military combatant and known for that. 
clearly understood strategy, but he'd actually spent very small amounts of time in combat. In fact, if you look at his whole pre-presidential career, one of the things that stands out, and it would have to for a person as young as he was, still our youngest president, uh, how brief he was in all these different fields, yet he was able to make contributions in these various fields and bring them together in his worldview. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. So, um, you know, Roosevelt in general just had an enormous capacity to absorb information. You know, he's reading constantly. You know, one of the most fun things was looking at his reading lists. You know, he would go on a train trip and have the Librarian of Congress give him 40 books to read. And so he, you know, he, um, he also saw himself I think is a historical figure. And I think he was also, you know, considering both his future and his legacy almost at all times. And so you're right, you know, he, I think felt it was important to serve in the military, you know, pretty much had to force his way into the, into the war. Um, and, you know, also his time out West, you know, he went um, after the death of his wife and mother, human who was depressed. Um, he did uh, stay out there for a little while and then, you know, pretty quickly returned to the East. And the whole time he was out there, he definitely had his eye on resuming his political career. But I think he was just a man of such enormous energy um, and empathy that he could absorb a lot. And then, as you note, he's a writer, um, always writing throughout his life. And he's very smart about, you know, what we would call now public relations, right? And working with the press and crafting an image. And I think his roles uh, in the military and out West were part of an image that he wanted to create for himself. And he did it pretty successfully. And at some point, an image of that nature becomes reality, doesn't it? It's fascinating that uh, among the people he set an example for, was Ernest Hemingway, who grew up as a young person watching this. And of course, later he was embittered by Roosevelt after the First World War, but he was greatly affected by that as the sort of person of action, the person of thought. And Roosevelt was even writing the night he died. I mean, he clearly used that to order his own thinking. Is that fair to say? I think that's right. Yeah. And he, you know, he wrote um, something like 150,000 letters during his lifetime. So yeah, he was, you know, he was in a very active mind, a huge circle of friends and acquaintances. And, you know, I think was always very deliberate about both um, seeking advice and opinion and sharing his own, you know, in a way to um, help shape public opinion in the broadest sense. Now, tell us about that other great personality, the protagonist of your book, J.P. Morgan, Jupiter. Who in the so, world was J.P. Morgan besides a very formidable looking personage in photographs? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he had a he had a kind of diseased nose that he used to call part of the American business structure. <laughs> um, and, you know, to to partly um, give a second uh, answer to your question, you know, one of the things that was surprising to me was how similar Roosevelt and Morgan were in a lot of ways. You know, I came at this thinking that they were, um, you know, opponents who, you know, were destined to clash because of their differing worldviews. While that's true, 
um, what I also realized is that there were a lot of overlaps, both socially. Um, Morgan and Roosevelt's father were acquaintances. Uh, they helped start the Metropolitan Museum together, um, as well as the American Museum of Natural History. You know, Roosevelt and Morgan, though a generation apart, were in the same social circles. You know, they had some of the same friends. Um, they didn't really have the same enemies, though. And, you know, Morgan, uh, Morgan, like Roosevelt, grew up in privilege. Um, like Roosevelt, had a pretty strong father who shaped uh, his career direction. Um, it often was his moral compass when Morgan strayed. Uh, you know, like Roosevelt, um, lost his first wife to illness just in, in Morgan's case, four months after they were married and suffered depression, you know, at that point and, and in other points during his life. All while he was extending the family empire, uh, started really by his grandfather, but, you know, built by his father um, in London and intended to be uh, the most trusted name in finance, um, a, a firm that could bring capital from Europe um, to a growing industrializing America that was, you know, hungry, if not desperate for cash. And so Morgan was that intermediary, you know, controlled money. So, you know, when I said he wasn't the wealthiest of Americans, um, and he never was, but he controlled more money than any other American and probably uh, more than anybody else in the world. And that was the source of his power, you know, that he could bring money to companies um, and to uh, and to investors and, you know, and sometimes to the U.S. government itself. And as your book points out so well, Morgan played a role that is, frankly, impossible today to imagine. Uh, for example, there was not yet a Federal Reserve at the beginning of this period. Uh, you had the U.S. government had a smaller capital, a smaller budget in 1900 than the biggest company in the country. It was a very different place. So Morgan was truly an extraordinary figure, the like of which we probably won't see again. I think that's right. You know, uh, he, yes, he um, helped bail out the government essentially twice in his life, um, in in 1895 and again in 1907, and it exactly because there was no central bank to serve that function, you know, and um, Morgan, of course, profited from those deals that he made. And, you know, in Morgan's um, view, everything that he did was for the good of the country. And um, I love this quote by an anonymous um, broker, you know, after, after Morgan um, bailed out the um, the country in 1895 um, by kind of when when gold reserves were low, um, you know, and Morgan said, you know, this was like a patriotic act of mine, and this broker said, oh, it's you know, fascinating and lucrative patriotism. So, <laughs> Morgan Morgan um, didn't like to be questioned, you know, really thought that he knew what was best, and you know, when it comes to Roosevelt or any president, also felt like um, anything that happened. In Washington was of secondary importance to what was happening in New York or London, um, you know, in the world of finance on Wall Street, and that and that Washington was really a second-rate power 
when compared to the power of uh, the Wall Street financiers. So Theodore Roosevelt becomes president on Saturday, September 14th, 1901. He was vice president and William McKinley had been assassinated at the Buffalo Exposition, lingered for a week. But the world was not really ready for the kind of change this was likely to bring. Please tell us about his meeting with J.P. Morgan in February of 1902 and why that was important. So uh, a few months after Roosevelt became president, um, as you noted, in the fall of 1901, Morgan announced the creation of uh, an enormous railroad company uh, called Northern Securities, um, worth about $400 million um, and would dominate kind of rail traffic in the Northwest and was one part of a bigger plan to kind of create a, a transportation company that would span the globe. Um, one other thing to, to note is that just as Roosevelt and McKinley were inaugurated um, the previous March, Morgan had announced the creation of what was then the world's biggest company, a billion dollars, um, and the company was called U.S. Steel. And so when Roosevelt takes office, He's watched Morgan create the biggest company in the world. And then while Roosevelt himself is in office, he sees Morgan create the second biggest company in the world. And you know, for Roosevelt, um, this is um, an opportunity to test uh, the antitrust laws, which have been um, on the books um, in practice since 1890, enforced erratically, not always successfully, by the government, uh, and to show Americans, you know, that he's willing to stand up to someone like Morgan, um, to take on an industry, the railroad industry, that was really the most important industry um, in America at the time, and the most important industry to Americans at the time. You know, no one could avoid um, kind of tangling with the railroads one way or another. Uh, even if it was just as a customer. But, you know, business relied on it. Uh, towns depended on rail traffic. Um, politicians, you know, asked for free passes. Railroads were bribing politicians, you know, trying to bribe journalists. It was, you know, they, the railroad industry was the internet of its day. And so for Roosevelt to take on Morgan and to take on Morgan's railroad company was uh, a really... Um, big signal, both to Americans and to the Wall Street, that this was a president who was going to be doing things differently. And it scared a lot of people on Wall Street. So please tell us a little bit about their meeting on Saturday, February 22nd, 1902. Yes, sorry, that was your question. So, so No, um, no, it's all, it's all part of the great uh, prologue. Thank you. Yeah, so, so um, when Roosevelt's attorney general announced that the government was going to file a case against Morgan and his company. Um, Morgan was up in New York and he was really shocked, you know, for all the reasons um, that you could imagine someone who is nicknamed Jupiter, um, you know, very, very um, surprised that a new young president would take such a drastic action and would do it without consulting Morgan. 
or anybody at his firm. Uh, so, you know, Morgan had been used to working things out with the government, you know, quietly in back rooms. And so Morgan decided that he was going to try to conduct business the way he normally did. Um, he went down to Washington, um, you know, uninvited, unexpected by Roosevelt. Um, but once Roosevelt heard he was in town, of course, invited him to the White House. And, and there Morgan said something like, you know, are you going to um, hurt any of my other companies? Um, and Roosevelt said, no, it's just, you know, we, we only are looking at companies that we feel have done something wrong. Um, and then, you know, and Roosevelt said, you know, even if you think I've done something wrong when it comes to Northern Securities, can't you just send your man to my man and let them fix it up? <laughs> Why do we need to go to court? Um, and Roosevelt said, you know, that's exactly what we don't want to do. <laughs> we, we want this to be um, a public accounting. Uh, we want, you know, everyone to understand um, that we are going to uh, work for the benefit of Americans when we think that they're being harmed by big corporate interests. So, no, we're not going to settle this quietly. Um, and and then uh, just a few weeks after that, um, the attorney general filed the suit. So let's pause there for a second, because it's so different from our time. When he said your man to Roosevelt, he meant the attorney general of the, the attorney general of the United States. My man meant a private attorney on Wall Street. And that seemed entirely natural, unselfconscious to Morgan and probably to a lot of people at that time. I think that's right. You know, there was um, there was the assumption on not just Morgan's part, but on um, a lot of people in Wall Street that they were not not operating on um, on the same level as it, as the government, but they were operating on a higher level than the government, and so that you know they if there was a problem, then, you know, they should be able to work it out, that they would never expect the government to try to um, exert authority over them. And, you know, after, after that meeting, Roosevelt said to his attorney general, you know, that was so illuminating. I can see that Morgan considers us to be rival operators, you know, the government and business <laughs> on equal level. Uh, and, you know, for Roosevelt, he believed the government should um, have authority over business, you know, so in that sense, you know, they should not be equal to business or the business world or even to businessmen. So, um, yeah, it was it was um, two clashing worldviews, you know, at a time when um, things were shifting and Morgan didn't want to. Um, to go along with it, really. You know, he was trying to reassert the status quo. How do we know what was said at that meeting between Roosevelt and Morgan? Yeah, so you may have noticed me hedging just a little bit because we just have Roosevelt's account. Um, and, you know, Roosevelt often wrote um, with an eye toward his legacy and posterity. Um, and so, you know, we, we, you know, can trust most of what he says, but I think 
you know, we also need to be aware that it's one person's account. Roosevelt's own family called his letters home, posterity letters. Everybody was aware that Roosevelt was living and writing for the future every day of the week. That's right. Yeah, I, I think um, his his um, eldest, Alice, um, was particularly vocal about that. And yeah, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, um, there were plenty of contemporary accounts. You know, Roosevelt was friendly with journalists and, you know, often let them in. So it's not that we are relying solely on Roosevelt to interpret um, his own actions. But I think everybody, um, historians, journalists, and you know, just sensible readers um, would have to look at, you know, what the motivation is for anybody to put anything to paper. Let's talk a minute about another great event that you go through, and that is the so-called anthracite coal strike. What was that about? What is it? Why does it matter? Yeah, so um, anthracite coal was um, very important to America's industrialization. Um, It was a cleaner burning coal. And so important um, for the production of steel. Uh, People used it to warm their homes. Factories used it. um, Offices used it. And most of the anthracite coal was concentrated in Pennsylvania. Um, At that point, a lot of the um, railroads owned um, the land that the coal mines were on. And Morgan controlled the railroads in Pennsylvania. Um, So when um, about 147,000 anthracite miners went on strike, and that was most of them, uh, went on strike in May of 1902, it was um, a really potentially big problem for almost everybody, you know, on the East Coast and as far as the Midwest. Um, They weren't getting coal, you know, to heat. heat their homes, to run their factories. And Roosevelt was very concerned as the strike persisted into the autumn, uh, looking ahead to winter, um, where he could imagine there would be a lot of misery if people were cold um, and therefore also hungry. Uh, and you know he was keeping a very close eye on this. Um, up until that point, you know, there had been a lot of big strikes in America um, in the past three decades, but they had very often been put down um, with violence that was uh, often either supported by the government, um, sometimes it was government troops, and and also um, supported by business leaders. And so when Roosevelt looked at the strikers, um, he he saw an opportunity again to do something different from other presidents. Uh, He wanted to mediate in some way. Uh, He didn't think that um, there was a role for the government troops unless the strike really turned violent. But at this point, um, it wasn't. And so Roosevelt is looking for ways to get involved, to end the strike, to prevent real trouble in the winter. you know, thinks or talks at least to his attorney general, like the coal companies also seem like a monopoly or cartel. Could we take them to court as we did Morgan's Railroad Company? And the attorney general 
um, says, let's wait and see, you know, how we do with um, our first big case before we take on a second big case. Uh, and while, um, while the strike goes on through the summer, Morgan is away in Europe. He's corresponding with uh, his partners in New York and really hoping, um, as is Morgan, that the strike will end before winter and in Morgan's case, before he returns from his vacation in Europe. Um, but, but by the end of September, there have been all kinds of dire warnings um, from factories saying that they're gonna have to lay off people, from schools saying that they're gonna have to close soon because they don't have heat. Um, in, even the post office was threatening to close. And so Roosevelt decided he was going to act and he invited uh, the coal company executives and the leader of um, the United Mine Workers, um, which was trying to represent the coal strikers. He invited um, all of them down to Washington for a conference. So the union leaders, you can imagine, was very excited um, to get in the room with the president and with the coal executives who had rebuffed all of his efforts to try to talk to them. The coal executives were really annoyed. Uh, they didn't think that the president had any right um, or should take any role in a dispute between you know, them and their employees. Uh, but you, no one can really turn down an invitation from the president. So they all went down there. Um, they met uh, for uh, you know a, a day, a short day. Um, and I know Roosevelt, I think, much to his surprise, disgust, and ultimately anger, was not able to get very far with the coal executives at all. Um, they, rather than uh, welcoming his intervention or even really entertaining the possibility of some kind of dialogue with the union leader, blamed him and accused him of, you know, cooperating with the wrong people. You know, he they called the strikers the fomenters of anarchy and wondered why the president would even have the union leader in the same room as they were. And so they left. And, you know, afterward, Roosevelt was really despondent, didn't know what else he could do. He thought at the very least, the force of his personality, the power of his office would would make the coal executives um, if not embarrassed, you know, at least willing um, to discuss some kind of mediated end to the strike. But once Roosevelt had failed, and he was, you know, he was honest to himself and other people that he had failed, um, he had two choices. Um, the last resort was to nationalize the mines, which would have been very drastic, um, but actually had the support of some business people you know, who needed the coal, um, also had support of a lot of people. And I should say that the miners themselves who had been on strike for all this time also had the support of a lot of Americans. And there were rallies in support of them in New York. So I think Roosevelt felt confident that, you know, by trying to end the strike, by, by trying to, um, you know, encourage at least some kind of mediation that he was 
kind of doing the right thing and on the right side of history. Um, nationalizing the mines would have been something very different, a huge, um, you know, departure um, from anything that any government had done. And Roosevelt was wary of it. So his second choice was to get Morgan involved. And that's ultimately what happened. Um, it wasn't direct contact um, between Roosevelt and Morgan, but um, one of Roosevelt's uh, cabinet members was a good friend of Morgan's. And Roosevelt essentially sent him up to New York. Um, they met on Roosevelt's yacht and they crafted an agreement that required both um, the union leader and the coal mine executives uh, to end the strike and to uh, to kind of testify in front of an independent commission that Roosevelt would create, um, would give a chance for both sides to air their grievances. And then this commission would decide um, what to do. But in the meantime, the strikers would go back to work. One of the interesting parts of your book to me, or a, a subtext throughout that I think is quite different from today, is that even when Roosevelt and Morgan and others in their fields were very much in opposition publicly on big issues, they still worked together in a lot of ways. And a lot of their associates also worked together. And I kept wondering to what extent that could happen today. Yeah, it was one of the um, one aspect of the story, so to speak, that appealed to me, you know, which is exactly that, that so that, you know, the state, excuse me, the strike began in May of 1902. That was just a couple of months after, um, you know, Roosevelt and his attorney general had, um, you know, had filed the big antitrust case against Morgan. And, you know, as that case is working its way through the courts. Yes, Roosevelt and Morgan um, cooperated to avoid a real national crisis. Um, you know, they each had their reasons, of course. You know, Morgan was worried um, not just about, um, you know, the coal companies and, um, you know, the, the, the people, but he was worried that um, this would spread, that there would be a bigger strike, you know, that maybe his steel company, which was the really profitable one, um, would also be hurt. Um, you know, in general, didn't like disorder or chaos, um, wanted stability. Uh, you know, Roosevelt, too, you know, wanted, um, you know, peace and was wary of social unrest. So they both have their reasons to cooperate. Um, but nonetheless, I think you're right. You know, it speaks, it's, it, it, um, it suggests uh, a, a different time, you know, it wasn't like there was animosity between them, for sure, you know, but they were able to set it aside. And I think it was because they there were people who could um, reliably and confidently uh, move between the two men, you know, and and move between their two positions in some ways also. So if you had to summarize, uh, how do you think Roosevelt and Morgan viewed one another when they had finished their years of public activity? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I really, I don't think they ever liked each other. And the truth is that they never 
spent that much time together, you know, to um, at the at the end of um, the coal strike, you know, Morgan actually did go down to Washington um, and present this agreement um, that, you know, that would allow Roosevelt to create an independent commission. Um, there's no record of what they spoke about. Um, afterward, Roosevelt wrote a letter to Morgan and basically said, you know, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, this never would have happened without you. Um, but there is no record that Morgan replied. So I think, um, you know, Roosevelt um, understood that he could use Morgan as a very useful public symbol, you know, of the growing inequality and concentrated wealth, um, and that he might need um, to have a working relationship with Morgan at the same time. And, you know, he was pretty much able to pull that off. Um, and again, I think it's because there were a lot of intermediaries who also thought that was, a, you know, not, not holding Morgan to account, but understanding that that was Roosevelt's way of operating, um, but also saw that having some kind of working relationship would be beneficial for both of them. And, you know, that, that became much more evident in Roosevelt's second term. So having studied these two figures and their interaction more than likely anyone ever has or will, how would you summarize for people what is there positive and important to learn from Roosevelt and Morgan, each of them, and what are cautionary points about each of these historic personalities? Mm, yeah, well, I think, you know, the fact that, you know, that they were able to set aside personal antagonisms um, and, and to set aside, you know, the, the legal um, fight that they were in um, to cooperate in that very crucial moment, um, I think is pretty important and admirable. Um, you know, to me, it gets a little murkier in Roosevelt's second term. Um, and, and in part, that's because, you know, Roosevelt ultimately believed that um, regulation of business was more effective than litigation. And so as he was, uh, you know, working with Congress to create um, the Department of, of Commerce um, and other regulations for the railroads, you know, he did um, encourage and, and allow a lot of participation uh, from the industries and the executives who would um, be affected by this. And so, you know, I, in some ways, I can see how creating regulations that um, executives, you know, um, understand and feel like they can adhere to is useful, but I do wonder if he, you know, gave them too much power. Um, and and now, you know, when we look at something like that, when we see all of the ways in which industry, um, business, you know, lobbyists and individuals influence regulation or subvert it, um, it you know, it seems a little naive, you know, for Roosevelt um, to think that bringing um, business executives 
in to help create these regulations was um, a uniformly good thing. So I think, you know, Roosevelt's ability, um, strangely, you know, to compromise um, in some ways, not all, but in some ways, um, you know, was both a, a strength and maybe worked um, to, uh, not just to his, but, you know, to the country's detriment a little bit. Um, you know, I think Morgan, by that time, in my view, was really sort of a man out of his time. And then he was um, easing off um, from, you know, work, um, spending a lot more time on his fabulous um, art and manuscript collection, traveling a lot. And so I think he understood that too, you know, Americans' um, antagonism toward the wealthy was something he never really understood and really didn't want to have to understand it. And so, you know, I think that was probably his biggest fault. You know, he he was an American aristocrat um, and not really a Democrat in the lowercase d. And I think, um, you know, raised a big question that we ask now, which is, you know, the, the really wealthy among us um, have some responsibilities, right? But what are those? What are the extent of those? Um, it, it can't, I don't think, just be to their shareholders or investors. But that's 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 what Morgan saw. So I think he, you know, he had a limited um, worldview, which I think would be very out of place today. One of the themes throughout your book, and it's clearly one that, by your own account, helped motivate you to write it is the recurring issue of oligarchies. And this is, of course, throughout history. Aristotle writes about them. All the different great nations and empires contend with it. I thought it was very fascinating that you quote Roosevelt on page 272 of your book. And by the way, one thing I would urge listeners to be aware of, this book is distinguished by a great number of wonderful photographs throughout. So you'll get to see a lot of these personalities who may seem distant. The book brings them right to life. But Roosevelt writes, of all possible oligarchies, I think an oligarchy of colossal capitalists is the most narrow-minded and the meanest in its ideals. He goes on, and perhaps a more self-indulgent way to say, I thoroughly broke up this connection so far as it existed. Let's put the second part to the side a moment. But I think what's really fascinating about this is Roosevelt as historian would have been very much aware that at each hinge point in American history, beginning with the founding, the leaders viewed it as efforts against oligarchies. And the oligarchies are protean. It's not just, Roosevelt's very carefully saying here, an oligarchy of capitalists is the most narrow-minded. Oligarchy is not just financial. It can be a number of things. What are the implications of this in the early 21st century? How do you think about oligarchy in a way that truly captures what's happening? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, as the subtitle of my book suggests, you know, American capitalism um, in the early 1900s was, you know, was really raw and unformed and, you know, at that point was, you know, just 
a few years really away from kind of robber barons and gilded age and um, was very much um, the the kind of organizing system and and the and the um, and kind of the most uh, for Roosevelt, I think, um, you know, the most um, important way to view society. Um, I think, you know, where we could fault him then, and, and you know, this brings me to the present, is, um, you know, Roosevelt was very much focused on the wealthy, uh, less focused on matters of um, racial discrimination, inequality, uh, you know, not as concerned um, about uh, gender inequality or women's rights, you know, uh, he did some things in, in both of those um, areas to remedy some injustice, but not a lot. Um, and so, you know, when I think now about kind of the concentrated power, I think we have to uh, layer in um, those those other. Um, you know, kind of strands is not the right word, but you know, we have we have to add on to um, just the accumulation of wealth and power, and and really think about privilege and what that means, um, and you know, the ways um, that we can, um, you know, ask ask those people to to contribute differently to society. You know, if if not, um, you know. If not, uh, you know, kind of dismantling systems, but but looking at the individuals themselves, I guess, and asking, you know, what they can do with all that they have, and to ask them to think about how they got it. Could one argue that that's what every generation of Americans does? That very set of questions, and it's also fascinating because one of the things that strikes me reading the excellent book, your book, The Hour of Fate is again, it, it's a reminder of the great humility we have to have, because when you look at history, the things that we think are most important or they thought are most important, future generations are gonna question and they're often gonna reject even our best thinking. So that requires a, a way of expression and thought that may not come naturally to a country that's had so much wealth, power, and international order built around it for three quarters of a century. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's right. I mean, that's yeah, really well said. You know, I think I know from Roosevelt's time, putting in place certain um, regulations, kind of starting to talk about certain ideas. Um, you know, in 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 some sense, you know, we are exactly talking about some of what he raised which was you know universal health care and like a wealth tax but 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 more broadly i think you're right that you know there are solutions um or reforms to systems and to problems and then you know inevitably circumstances change and you have to think about them again you know in in a new context uh and i think you know for um, for us now, and I, I could say this as the mother of a teenager, that you know our efforts toward climate change, um, I think, are, you know, I think a lot of people see them as insufficient now, and the younger generation, you know, does now and and will 
you know, when, when they're in charge. Well, that's one thing you and I are totally at one on. This is a wonderful book, Susan Burfield, The Hour of Faith, Theodore Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, and The Battle to Transform American Capitalism. Is there anything else you would like to leave our listeners with? I know you've kindly uh, agreed that anyone who purchases the book and would like to, I guess, get hold of you through your website, perhaps, that you'd be willing to send a book plate, which I got to say is a very lovely book plate, too, from your publisher. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So exactly. Very happy to, um, you know, to uh, answer any questions or emails or a request for a book plate. Um, my website is pretty simple, susanburfield.com. And you'll see on there a way to contact me. And I'm really happy to engage with any of your listeners, um, you know, about uh, anything that we've talked about, ideas you've got. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm very happy to sign um, a book plate and send it out to anyone. Is there another book in the offing? <laughs> Not just yet. I'm I'm back to my full time job as an investigative reporter, but I I I hope to write another book. Um, but I don't have um, anything underway right now. But thank you for asking. Well, thank you, Susan Burfield. It's been an absolute delight to have you with us. And again, congratulations on the Hour of Fate. Highly recommended. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.